0: Hello and welcome to The Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the interior design community for the interior design community. My name is Jeff Hayward and with my co-presenter, Susie Rumbled of Tesuto, we explore the business challenges faced by professional interior designers and offer practical advice in how to overcome them. We're joined every month by a special guest who can share their insights and expertise with you. Today,
1: we're taking a look at the state of design education, Is design education preparing graduates successfully for employment? How is it changing to meet the needs of the industry? What are the key skills that interior designers look for in graduates? And what can be done to ease that sometimes painful transition from education into professional practice? Welcome to the Interior Design Business.
0: We're podcasting today from KLC, one of the leading career-focused design schools in the country, based in the heart of London's Design Centre in Chelsea Harbour. Joining us for this conversation is none other than the Principal of KLC, and like Susie, a former President of the British Institute for Interior Design. Welcome, Jenny Gibbs. Thank you so much for inviting me to join your podcast this morning. I'm really
2: very honoured to be a guest on this excellent series. Fantastic. So,
1: Jenny, before we start, could you give us a quick overview of KLC for our listeners?
2: Well, KLC started in the 1980s in a very small way with short courses. Um, It's built up over the years until now we have university validation, um, lots of different study methods so students can study with us full-time, part-time or online and they can go right through from uh, an introductory course to a full BA ONS. Um, We're very proud to have Um, had some awards over the years, particularly lately for creative course development um, and for our employment focus, which is something that's been a real feature of the school. We have, perhaps in any one average week, we have about 500 students studying with us full-time and part-time, and we have actually several thousand studying with us online. You are clearly outstandingly good at what you do.
1: Can you cast your mind back to the beginning of KLC and may I ask how you were able to lay the foundations for what you've achieved today?
2: Well, Susie, first of all, you said something very kind there, but I do want to stress that, as you know, with any organization, and yours will be the same, you know, it's the team that you, you build up that make all the difference. So I've not done any of this on my own. But I did start it, and it was very much a a home business to begin with, running these short courses. And at that stage, um, it was a little bit broader than what we do now. So I was doing business courses for women, courses on entertaining. Even had Mary Berry doing a demonstration. Yes, before she was famous. Um, And uh, we did uh, design courses. We did decorative arts courses. um, And that included decorative paint finishes, which, of course, the paint was oil-based. Oh, my God, that was the year of the
1: speckle and the... of course roll, it was, and the, the marbling, rag, and, the, and, yes.
2: and of course the fumes were terrible. Um, and we had curtain making courses, and they were messy. So, And this was quite an ask for the family. Um, well, what, you
1: don't mean to say you were
2: doing this in your own home. Oh, I certainly was, yes. This all happened in the basement and in my dining room um, and planned around my kitchen table. Uh, but the final straw came because one day my husband went into our conservatory where he found... Uh, a rather formidable lady with a large pair of secateurs and a capacious carrier bag helping herself to cuttings in the conservatory very (laughs) liberally. So at that point he sat me down and explained that if this was to continue it would be continuing in its own separate premises Um, and it was therefore this little school was born and we've been growing organically from there. (laughs)
1: 26 years ago, when I set up Tesuto and KLC astonishingly had already been in existence for over a decade by this point, there were no interior design degrees and no academically based study available at all for people wanting a career in the profession. Today it's very different. Interior design is a hugely popular career choice for many people. Nearly every university offers at least one interior design degree and there are many private colleges offering extremely high quality training and qualifications. So my first question to you, Jenny, is this. Do you think that design education today is preparing graduates successfully for employment?
2: In some areas, yes, and in some areas, no. I think that educators do a brilliant job on design process, giving students a methodology, a framework, if you like, on which to base and develop their ideas. So far, so good. However, where I'm worried, and I include KLC in this, although we're working really hard on it at the moment, is that I don't think we're making students aware of the very high level of responsibility, as you referred to earlier, that they carry. Design, after all, changes lives at every level.
1: What exactly do you mean by that in terms of what responsibilities should they be aware of that perhaps the colleges and the universities are not making them aware of?
2: Well, I think that's a lot of different levels. Interior designers are responsible for the health and safety of the users of the property they have. They contribute to the national economy. They uh, can make a huge difference to business and to the profitability of business. Mm -hmm. They can make businesses, uh, well, more importantly, they can make buildings adapt and be reused and therefore more sustainable through the way that they specify they can make buildings more uh, sustainable and, frankly, healthier, again, for those users. So I think there are huge areas of responsibility for designers.
0: And is it a challenge for uh, educators like yourself to keep up with the pace of change in the construction industry? It's
2: a huge challenge for des- for design schools uh, in every way to keep up with not just what's happening in the construction industry, but with all areas. It's, it's one of the reasons that we like to use as much as we possibly can um, tutors who are working designers, but working designers have to keep up to date too. So Mm. educators responsibility is to keep training and training their tutors. So that's an ongoing uh, challenge. We've got a lecture, for example, coming up on trends for all our tutors from a top trend specialist and the digital side of things is another big challenge. They've not only got to learn new digital skills because that's a bit like having a tiger by the tail, mm-hmm. um, but they've got to keep practicing them. So, well, as
1: as as a practicing interior designer, we've struggled in our practice to keep pace. With all the new developments. For example, I'm just in the process of sending my team on some basic BIM training. Um, BIM is building information modelling, and this is the very latest uh, industry innovation. And uh, you know, it's something that we have to be aware of as interior designers, even though it's an aspect of interior design that hasn't really started to impact on our end of the construction chain yet.
0: That must present challenges for you as an educator as well in keeping the courses fresh and up-to-date and exciting. Well, it certainly does. (laughs) Um,
2: Actually, I think you're touching on two different things there. Because keeping a course exciting is all about, uh, you know, the passion and the engagement of the tutors. Keeping a course up to date and current is another thing altogether. And for that, we're very dependent on our links with industry. Um, We have an alumni advisory board. We're very proactive. We actively seek through our careers department feedback from employers Um, and all of that, um, as well as, again, coming back to this training thing with tutors, sending them out to relevant industry training to to keep up to date. Um, It's absolutely vital for the curriculum.
0: What about from your perspective, Susie, what do you look for as an employer in graduates and potential employees who've been through a school like KLC?
1: I think interior designers are a type, um, and I think perhaps when we are employing people, we look for qualities perhaps more than skills. I mean, we kind of assume that if a student has come out of one of the top schools like KLC, um, they will have a knowledge of building construction. They'll have an, an, a knowledge of the, a good knowledge of the elements of the interior design process. They'll have, they'll have had some CAD training. They'll be able to put competent schemes together. But I think really we're looking more for qualities given that all that other stuff is present. So we're looking for people who are team players, people who don't have too much ego because it's not about us, it's about the client ultimately, um, people that have a sort of anal attention to detail. Um, I suppose those, are the, those would be the main ones.
0: Are those qualities or characteristics of, of a designer teachable?
2: Yes and no. I'm hedging my <laughs> bet on this answer. I mean, one of the things we do is we run group projects and this allows our students to collaborate as a team. I mean, Susie, you mentioned team playing, uh, and it very soon highlights the difficulties of working in a team. And I, you know, I think you can't completely transform people, but you can make them aware of perhaps some of the compromises they might have to develop to work successfully in a design team. We we ram home the importance of. of behaving in a professional way most employers when they come to us highlight people skills good old-fashioned people skills Absolutely. Um, and and you can't magically turn people into lovely sort of social butterflies <laughs> overnight but you you can make them aware of, of what matters and hopefully prepare them
0: how easy is it to find the right employee then Susie
1: well we've been pretty lucky but I think It's because we do have such a nice team ethos in my company. Um, We do recruit from KLC and some of the other schools as well. And what we tend to do is what we... Laughingly, internally called dis- uh, recruitment by stealth, um, by which I mean that what normally we would do is we would come to the final shows of the students, identify those ones that clearly have those elemental skills of CAD, scheming, etc., etc., seem like nice people, chat to them, and then offer one of them a, a, an internship. It's just always a paid internship for three months. Then at the end of that period, if they're fitting into the team, because it's so important in a small practice that they do, uh, we then offer them a 12 month contract. And then if we're still friends at the end of 12 months, then they come on the payroll permanently. And we've recruited very successfully using that method for for years. As a practice, we have had more success recruiting from the private schools than we actually have done from the universities. I've had some extraordinary conversations with third-year university, um, almost graduates. I had one young man, who didn't know how long a metre was, um, and I had another another um, another young man actually who also was not familiar with the term upholstery, and that absolutely gobsmacked me because I couldn't believe that these two kids, you know in a few short months were going to be let loose on employers or potentially the public.
2: Well, it's really interesting because we went through an experience with our validation with the University of Brighton, which was a learning process on both sides because, as we've mentioned before, they're very strong conceptually. They don't do very much on materiality, but they're very strong on research. Um, They're very strong on design process. We are much more employment-focused, practical in our approach, and we've really benefited from learning about critical analysis, a slightly more academic approach, if you like, a little bit more rigor. And they have been very interested in our materiality uh, the students' ability to specify and those sides of things. So it's rather nice that actually um, when you put the private um, and the public education together, um, that they can both grow and, from and learn other. from each other.
1: Yes. I mean, we, when, we're, when we're recruiting, we kind of expect that students won't know that stuff. You know, I expect that I am going to be teaching people how to specify things and the impact of the decisions they make both in terms of advising clients on whether to choose product A or product B, its longevity, its sustainability, all those other things that we've touched on. Um, We expect to have to teach our new recruits about materiality and how to specify things and the impact of value engineering, particularly on the, and, and their advice that they give to clients, so that clients clearly understand the differences between product A and product B. Um, we don't normally expect students to, to know that because they won't have had time to learn it.
0: In terms of that kind of process of, of going from school or university to employment, how much time do you have to allocate before you consider them to be up to speed with what you need? in terms of a working practice?
1: It doesn't really work that way because they come to us, as I explained earlier, normally as a, as a three-month intern and they get thrown into the deep end. So they'll be working closely with more experienced team members, doing bits and pieces, and they really quickly pick it up. We have an open plan office and that also is a huge benefit because the amount of stuff just going on in the office all the time, the conversations taking place, and I always encourage the students that if they hear anything... Anything that they don't understand, make a note of it and if I'm too busy to answer at the time, call me at six o'clock and I'll spend five minutes talking about whatever it was.
0: Would you say that other practices are as good as you are in terms of working with KLC in private schools?
1: I It's not a question I can answer, but I'm hoping that Jenny might be able to. KLC um, run a fantastic alumni service, and I think they're very good at matching students to practices, and they always send me people that they know will get on with my gang. Um, But I don't know how you work with other other design practices.
2: I think the comment I would make, Susie, that I think you are a very, very good employer, and you are very good (laughs) at nurturing these new graduates and giving them the support they need, because you know, we don't have the time, you mentioned time, which is the enemy in design education, to cover everything. I mean, implementation is a really tricky one. We can prepare them with the facts. But every design project, as you know, is different. There are always peculiar problems that arise. And we can't prepare them for that. That's going to have to happen in practice.
1: I always think to the people forget that there are so many different things that go into buildings. So you've got everything from surface finishes to ceramic tiles to plaster work to wooden elements. You know, you've got an enormous palette of materials and structures and insulation types and drainage and all the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. And you can spend a lifetime learning about all of it. You know, you can't possibly teach students everything that they need to know at the time of graduation it's just never going to happen and you know to an extent too it depends on the on the projects that you end up with we years ago did a, <laughs> a clonic irrigation suite as part of a beauty health treatment center up in Hampstead and for about six months I became a world authority on delivering water to the body at
2: precisely 37 degrees centigrade from any distance but don't you think that that's one of the fantastic things about interior design I always say to potential students look you will go on learning all your life, new things. It's really exciting. Yes, no, it's so true. I learned something even every if day. it's colonic irrigation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a dirty, rotten job, but someone had to do it.
0: <laughs> In terms of support from uh, potential employers, what would be on your wish list of things that you'd like to see more of, Jenny?
2: Gosh, off the top of my head, that's quite a hard one. I mean, I think Susie's a perfect example. It is having an open door and saying to them, look. You know, if you're really stumped with something, here I am, come, come and ask me. Um, because it is these unforeseen things that, that come up. You can go by the book, but when the problems arise, then, then you need somebody with experience to guide you.
0: Are there enough opportunities for the thousands of interior design graduates coming out of these colleges and private schools to actually make a use of their studies?
2: Well, that is a question I'm often asked. Um, (laughs) And there's an awful lot of doom and gloom in the media about this, isn't there? I mean, from our point of view, fortunately, fingers crossed, our employment statistics are remaining very high. We're finding more resistance from employers about the shorter courses. And we're having to adapt those so that there are different employment opportunities and some more entrepreneurial opportunities. Um, But Uh, from the sort of main career courses, it's going very well. Um, What I'm hearing from designer friends, though, is that very often they're having now to adapt their practices. They're seeking more work internationally as things get tougher. They are looking at ways that they might sort of expand and perhaps do more product design, um, add another string to their bow. Um, And Brexit uncertainty, I mean, I can't believe any business isn't affected by this. And so, If this goes on, it is bound to affect employability. But with my fingers tightly crossed, just at the moment, it's all right.
1: I'm finding, though, that people have got more design education, whereas, as you you just touched on it then, um, once upon a time, people would have the short course, they might come to us with three months under their belt. Um, But now we're finding that people often have a first degree and then a second degree in interior design. And I think that's probably true of a lot of professions, that there's just, in order to become employable, you just have to do
2: more. Yeah. I think that applies, as you say, to so many professions.
0: How many graduates actually start their own business once they've graduated from KLC?
2: Hopefully none, because we (laughs) give them dire warnings about the, you know, doom mongering isn't in it. But I mean, we, we really try and frighten them. And it's why we especially on the shorter courses, we hold back on anything about how to run a business or too much professional practice because we are not training them to go out and run their own businesses from the word go, unless, and I would just qualify this by saying that coming off the three-month course, especially those who've been in business before, you know, they might be running a shop or they might have a partner who's in property development and they can go and add a new string to their bow with um, a bit of decorating furniture layouts that sort of thing um, which you know they're perfectly qualified to do and it's in a sort of set environment
1: but it's a double-edged sword because that's not really interior design and the problem is if you say that someone's qualified to go and do furniture layouts next thing you know they're moving walls around um, you know, it's, it, that is that can be problematic, I think, because they haven't got the knowledge in terms of things like fire regulations, health and safety, uh, you know, their responsibility to the public, the insurances that they need to have. I'm often getting, you know, approached by by students who are kind of going, oh, yes, I'm just going to go and set up a practice as soon as I graduate.
2: And my advice always is, please don't. don't. Yes. <laughs> no, and it's a perfectly fair point. There, there is a risk. But running as a theme throughout all our courses with all those subjects, you know, the importance of insurance is stressed, um, you know, the building regulations are stressed, the risks are stressed. Um, so they go out with it ringing in their ears, but, you know, we can't then keep them on a leash after we lose them. So. No,
1: I think the issue for me is that the problem is that the people that do go out and set up practices on their own like that, then perhaps taint those interior it taints the name of the profession because the public come across those people. They clearly don't know what they're doing and therefore all interior designers get dumped into that same bucket. So those of us that have been chipping away at the coalface for the last quarter of a century um, kind of feel slightly aggrieved, I think, that people with 12 months under their belt can just turn around and think they can set up and practice.
2: Well, I, I think you're, you're perfectly justified in having that view. Um, you know, I, I worry about it. It's embedded in everything we do to say, don't do it. Um, but but there is an element of risk there.
1: Yeah, no, indeed. I mean, I think this is where the British Institute of Interior Design recognises the fact that there is a, a gulf between someone graduating and someone actually practising as a fully qualified designer. So what they say is that you need six years of combined education and professional practice before you can really call yourself an interior designer. And they have lots of clever ways, mentoring and the professional pathway and so forth, um, of taking people from that position as graduates
0: to, to being fully functioning designers. Do you think there's sufficient awareness among students about that? Do they come in with an expectation that they're going to be starting up as an interior designer after completing a course?
2: Oh, I think almost everyone who comes to us, probably their long-term dream is to run their own business. Um, I mean, Susie, so you were commenting that you think a lot of our students are younger than they used to be. And, you know, none of them realistically think they're going to go into business. They, it's all about employment for them. And so their main uh, interest when they come for interview is what the employment statistics are and what the opportunities are for them to work. Um, so, no, I, I, you know, I think it is the risk is more with the older ones who have business experience um, who feel, you know, they're perfectly competent to run a business and perhaps don't understand. They, they might
1: be perfectly competent to run the accounts and produce an invoice and so on and so forth, but exactly. they're not going to be competent to take a detailed brief from a client and then to actually manage that process through to its ultimate conclusion. I completely agree Without getting sued, jailed or drop, or killing someone <laughs> yes. by dropping a building on them.
0: Can design education balance a career focus while still nurturing creativity? I think it can. I think what's really helpful is to run uh,
2: projects that are mainly conceptual. So that really helps to get the students to let go because it's much less prescribed. Nevertheless, they're not at art school and it's important to remind them that whatever they do design has got to work. And, for example, we very often get them working on an exhibition stand. So Part M is going to come into it. They're all sort of practical things they're going to have to consider. So it's it's finding that balance. But, you know, a little conceptual work just, just gets them going.
0: And do you feel that the people you take on are rooted in the real world enough for you?
2: We tend
1: to assume that they will be creative. They will come to us as creatives. But what we then do is we take those creatives and we, we give them a, a practical framework within which... To exercise their creativity.
2: And I I would just add to that that something that never ceases to amaze me is how creative the people are who walk through the door here. It's very, very rare that we get somebody who, you know, with a little bit of encouragement, isn't actually fundamentally creative. It's an exciting thing.
1: And given that you take so many people from so many walks of life, do you think that means that most people are actually creative if you just dig a little?
2: I think that is probably the case. I think that you know there are people who are gen- genuine, all-out creatives. They can be ex- obsessive, uh, slightly impractical, but wildly creative. And there are those who are great lovers of art and design and and have a creative streak, but they're a little bit more practical in their approach. And you know they could contribute to a practice in a slightly different way from those who are the the really wild creative angels. Yeah. Mm.
0: What final piece of advice would you have for students keen to embark on a career in interior design?
2: I think what I'd say is something that in fact
0: could apply
2: to almost any career you're going out into. But interior design, as we were talking earlier, is about people. So I think it's vital to put people, whether you're working with them, whether they're your client, whether they're your contractors, at the heart of everything you do. What about you, Susan? Okay, so I've got two,
1: two things, two points I want to make relating to that. One thing that we always say to people is open your eyes. Most people walk around with their eyes closed. Look at everything. Look at the way things go together. Look at the way things interact. Look at the shadows. Look at the way... Two two different uh, materials join. um, Look at historic details. Look up at buildings. Just keep your eyes open. Observe, observe, observe. Observe your clients. Look at what they wear. Look at their existing properties, whether it's a commercial property or or an office or or a house. You know, look at what they're doing. And then the other thing we always tell them is listen, because I've said it before. It's not about you you will hear more, you will learn more from just listening and you'll learn more from listening to the things your clients don't say often than the things that they do. So in terms of actually creating spaces that are usable for the people that are going to use them, you need to have, had this, you need to have this real understanding of what their needs are, not just the fact they tell you they want it to be blue
2: because I, that's not the answer. It's such brilliant advice and I have to say the first design job I went for, I was kept waiting in the waiting room. And when I went in, the the interviewer chucked me a sketchbook and he said, now, draw what you saw in the waiting room. Wow. Wow! I didn't get the job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jenny, and thanks also to KLC for hosting us today. Next month, we'll be heading to Manchester to discuss the perils of dealing with private clients with our special guest, Fiona Watkins of Fiona Watkins Design.
0: You can find The Interior Design Business on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and on-demand services everywhere. We're on Twitter at IntDesignPod and on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of The Interior Design Business is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production.